Welcome to the Parent-Infant Podcast, produced by the Parent-Infant Foundation, where our vision is that all babies have a sensitive, nurturing relationship to lay the foundation for lifelong mental and physical health. We do this through supporting the development and delivery of specialised parent-infant relationship teams around the UK, and by influencing policy. This episode is part of a mini-series looking at the theme of understanding early trauma and the importance of early relationships. Across the series, we will be exploring academic and professional perspectives on how babies show trauma, the reality for families experiencing multiple disadvantage, and Scotland as a trauma-informed nation. Enjoy listening. Good morning and welcome to the Parent Infant podcast series on understanding early trauma. I'm Sally Hogg, the Deputy CEO at the Parent Infant Foundation, and today I've got the opportunity to talk to Pasco Fearon. Pasco is a clinical psychologist and leading researcher with a focus on children's mental health and the family environment. He's Professor of Family Research at the University of Cambridge and the Anna Freud National Centre for Children and Families, as well as President of the Society for Emotional and Attachment Studies and Deputy Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Child Psychology and Psychiatry. So Pasco's got a huge amount of relevant uh, academic research as well as practical experience to bring to the podcast. Um, Pasco and I have worked together for many years um, on different projects um, and it's been great to work thinking about um, the new longitudinal studies that he's leading. So I'm keen to talk about that today. So Pasco, maybe we could start there and you can tell us about um, maybe just for the audience, what are kind of longitudinal studies and what do we learn from them about early child development? So, yeah, thanks, Sal. So, I mean, longitudinal study, Britain actually just has this incredible tradition of running these longitudinal studies. It, it absolutely leads the world uh, in, in doing these really big national uh, uh, projects that study the lives of children as they grow up in this country. And they've been doing it since, since the 1940s. Um, and there's this amazing kind of bank of, of projects that have documented the lives of children, you know, across multiple generations. And, and we've learned so much that's relevant to uh, families growing up in this country, the sort of wider societal context and changes to that. Um, and, and we've also learned an awful lot about what some of the really important factors are that, that shape the, the developmental trajectories of, of, uh, of children and young people in this country. And so we're just um, embarking on a new one because obviously the, the situations and society and the stresses and challenges and opportunities that families face change from generation one generation to the next. And uh, so we're just about to embark on, on the next one, the, the Children of the 2020 study, which is uh, happening right now across the whole of England. Brilliant, very exciting. So from, I guess, thinking about those previous studies, what do we already know about the importance of those very early years of life and about early relationships in that period? Yeah, we know we know a lot, um, and and I guess you know that um, there are there are all kinds of important insights from those studies. Some of the most important are around the the impact of of, of very early traumas and adversities um, for for families and for young infants, and and that's really changed our understanding of just how crucial these early years are. So there have been a lot of studies, longitudinal studies that start from birth and follow families forwards, but also retrospective studies that you know that 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 talk to teenagers or adults and ask them to think back to their early life experiences and and those studies they all really largely converge on showing that early adversity 
which obviously comes in lots of different forms, um, has these really important connections to children's later outcomes right into adulthood. And, it, and the impacts of those early adversities is really quite wide ranging. So it, it covers a whole variety of different outcomes. So, um, you know, their emotional well-being, their ability, you know, when they're in school to, to relate well to their peers, um, their, their ability to do well at school and to really engage with the opportunities that you get at school. And, and then it forecasts, you know, the, the sort of likelihood that they might experience mental health problems in adolescence. And, and even going into adulthood, you can see connections between early life adversities and things like um, rates of employment, rates of adulthood, mental health and well-being, uh, the quality of relationships um, that people form with their partners and so on, which are obviously just really crucial parts of, 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 uh, of, of you know, um, thriving and succeeding in, in, in later life. And the really another really interesting thing that comes out of these studies is that there's some tendency for this early adversity that one person might experience to kind of spill over into the next generation because adversity as you're growing up can then affect the kind of parent you're able to be, which then starts to impact on um, how you look after and raise your children. And so you can get these kind of cascading effects from one generation to the next. And obviously, you know, the, 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 a key policy um, uh, focus would be to try and break those cycles so that so that uh, these these sort of long-term inequalities really that exist within society that are perpetuated from one generation to the next can be can be uh, you know can bro be broken and uh, and and um, people's outcomes improved and and uh, we have a fairer and happier society. Gosh, that's really thought-provoking, and there's so much in there I want to unpack. Um, I just wonder, could you say a little bit more about what we know about what what sorts of adversities really matter to children so it's obviously quite a big term talking about adversity and early trauma and do we know particular factors that that create more risk for children in fact one of the things that we know really clearly from a lot of research is that individual stressors within a family they may have a, 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 a you know a, a negative impact on children but but what really starts to bite in a sense is is when when they really pile up so we call this cumulative stress so you can think of it as if you know a, a family system has quite a lot of you know capacity to cope within it right and most families can can deal with you know um, things that affect them and they can cope and there's 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 slack there if you like in the system to 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 adapt but actually as the le the numbers of really you know serious and chronic stresses start to pile up it can overwhelm the family's ability to cope and that's that's that seems to be what what is really associated with um you know uh, particularly poor outcomes for families basically as, as they become overwhelmed by multiple stresses but these are things some of the really big ones obviously um i think as uh, working in this field you'd be really familiar with this but um serious severe mental health problems in in the parents um is a major risk factor uh, um alcoholism and, and drug abuse and drug dependence is a major risk factor um and and of course uh, maltreatment and 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 neglect of the child um is also you know um you know one of the most well do documented risk factors for for children's uh, later development and we also know that chronic and very severe poverty um although it's a that's a complex thing because often there are plenty of supports even in those kind of contexts and, and families can do really well but it, it it also really you know um uh, creates a lot of potential risk um so and and the and the, the um 
and what we what we what's also really clear is that um as i said these things tend to overlap and and what we think probably happens for a lot of families is that these kind of background factors like like struggling with employment or poverty or mental health difficulties or alcohol abuse um is, is not those things in and of themselves, but the impact that that can have on your ability to be responsive and care for your child in the way that you would ideally like. And, and that's probably one of the most important sort of funnels, if you like, that these background factors really impact on the developing child. Thank you. That's, I'm reflecting on that, thinking about the work that I do talking to policymakers. And, and I think policymakers have, and, and, or policy itself often kind of sees issues in, in very discrete boxes. You know, we've got the Department of Work and Pensions that looks at your income and the Department of Health that looks at your mental health. And, and I think the story that you're telling and that the research continues to tell about that kind of cumulative adversity can be quite a challenge to that very fragmented way of looking at families through a policy lens. Yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah, as, as you say, you know, I mean, actually, when you, when you think about the life of a family, they don't see it as split up in these different ways, right? These are just things that you have to deal with in your life, um, whether it's, you know, the child's health or your work situation or the relationship you've got with your partner um, or your grand or the grandparents um, or your neighbours or, you know, or the police or whatever. These are all totally joined up experiences for you. They all impact in complicated ways. And it's the system that divides these up into logical units for, for, for its own reasons. But as a family, that you don't care about that. You just need a bit of support sometimes. And, yeah, um, and, and probably the fact that the public services are so fragmented adds to that stress because it adds to the number of different individuals or services that you have to deal with as a family um, and the number of times we hear from families that they have to tell their stories as well. Absolutely. Yeah. One other thing that I think I, I actually didn't mention that I think is really important, actually, or maybe there are two things here. One of them is that um, the amazing diversity of um, of outcomes associated with these sorts of stresses too, because it's quite easy for us to get into the into thinking that you know if something has happened, if something bad has happened, then there's going to be a bad outcome. The evidence is actually shows that there is there is does there does tend to be that tendency, but it's also just as clear in showing that that's not always the case. And so trying to understand what makes a resilient child or what makes, makes a resilient family or what makes a resilient set of circumstances, which might even include the kind of professional and, and social kind of supports around a family, uh, is, is really, really crucial because it's, it's, it's much less kind of, you know, um, I, I often say that the, you know, we have this kind of snooker ball metaphor in our head sometimes that, you know, something bad happens and boom, it, there's going to be a bad outcome. And actually, it's much more complicated than that. There are there are a um, hundred different pathways that can lead from something really tough happening for a family, and you know how that plays out in terms of the child's future development. And so, you know, when you're thinking about services, you also need to not just make too many assumptions. What an example that's really close to my heart is postnatal depression, for example. So we know that there are risks associated with postnatal depression for children, but they're absolutely not inevitable risks. Yeah. Um, and what really matters is the kind of the child's eye experience of what's happening for, to, to their parents. So some parents are really able to manage, despite struggling emotionally, to keep a kind of, you know, a, a space around the child where the child is cared for, attended to, thought about, loved, responded to, stimulated, all those sorts of things that need to happen. Um, and our understanding from the research we've done so far is that if that happens, the child's outcomes are going to be good even if the parent is struggling. We, we, we're concerned for the parent, of course, and they deserve and should get treatment and support. 
Um, but it doesn't always mean that the child will have a bad outcome. And so, you know, actually thinking about these, how and why might the, something like a parental mental health problem or housing problems or whatever the contextual stresses might be, we need to think about how and why is that impacting the child and therefore what kind of support does the family actually need. And what will your, your new study there, Children of the 2020 study, is that going to help us to unpack some of that? Well, that will be part of the part of the picture, definitely. Um, I mean, it's trying to do lots of different things um, because really it's kind of trying to paint a, a very you know global picture of, of sort of the important things for families and um, uh, across the country at the moment. But one of the reasons why it's so valuable to have such a large study, so this would be eight and a half thousand babies and families across the country, and it's a nationally representative sample. So you're really getting a proper cross section of the whole of of, of England. The reason that's important is that it you, you can probably imagine that when, you, when you've got all of these sort of complicated relationships that I'm talking about, you want to try and actually understand those and unpack them and understand exactly which factors matter and which don't, um, or what the, what the most important supports are. You actually need really large numbers to do that because because often what you're talking about is trying to understand the exceptions as, re, as well as the as well as the rules. Do you see what I mean? So, you know, like try to understand, well, you know, um, maybe your family has had, you know, lost a, lost a job and really struggling financially, but the children are doing great. So how's that happening? And that's a sort of, you know, um, to do that, you really need to look at the exceptions uh, as well and try to understand, well, what are the kind of interacting factors here that are meaning that this this is still associated with a really good outcome for the child and you need scale for that and 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 um, a lot of studies don't allow us to kind of zoom in to those kind of really important um, factors that can make such a big difference um, and which may well be the really important policy drivers at the moment we we don't have a really good we don't have a really good handle on yeah yeah we know about what the risks are but we don't necessarily know how we protect children from those exactly yeah. You talked um, a little bit there about the kind of those protective roles of the, the early relationships and, and how we know that that is, as you said, the sort of funnel through which either stresses can act on a child or a child can be protected from those. Can you tell us a little bit more about kind of about those early relationships and why they matter and, and maybe what those protective relationships look like? Yeah, so... Um... I mentioned something about a baby's eye view. So when you when you're a, when you're a developmental psychologist, you know you're trying to sort of you're trying to in a sense try understand what all of the kind of you know microscopic experiences that the child is having that is shaping how they grow and how they develop. And when you're a policymaker, you're zoomed out a thousand miles away from that usually. And and um, but actually, when we're thinking about those kind of driving forces that really make a difference to babies, they are the subtle, tiny, daily experiences of life when you're little. Um, and and when you, you know, when you think about it, and the research evidence really supports this, um, so much of that is happening in the context of these primary relationships with caregivers. Yeah. Um, and we call those relationships attachment relationships. And and it and it it appears particularly in early life that those interactions in the context of those kinds of close relationships are re really important in supporting children's early development. And um, what a lot of the evidence suggests is that there, there, there are a variety of things that parents are doing that are really sort of scaffolding and supporting the child's learning, their emotions, their cognition, uh, and so on. Um, and the sort of essence of what we've learned so far about 
what's important there is this idea of, of responsiveness uh, or sensitive responsiveness we sometimes would describe it as and what that what that what does that look like um i mean really what it is about is a parent who is able to tune in to the baby's you know subtle or not so subtle behaviors um and understand what they're about be attentive to them and be responsive to them in a way that seems to be supporting what the child needs in a mo you know in, in often in a very kind of matter of fact doesn't have to be sort of super parenting but but just responding to what the the subtle or not so subtle things that the child needs in any given moment and that's what we call responsiveness and we all seem to vary in how able we are to do that you know we vary from day to day to a certain extent depending on what's happening for us um, but also our, our own experiences of being raised almost certainly has an impact on our capacity to, to, to be that tuned into babies and what they need. And that seems to be, um, you know, uh, the, that's, as I said, that's the kind of funnel that makes such a, a big difference for, for children's later development. And that's why a lot of the intervention work and support for families is, is really about trying to find ways to really help them to be as, as responsive as they, as they can. I think um, from my understanding of the science that we need to be really clear that for some families that will be enough dealing with those adversities in their life but some just just tackling the adversities will not necessarily help them to tune in for the babies they may need that additional relationship support as well that, that seems to be really really clear and, and again I think I think it's tempting to assume that if you just sort of um, you know fix the uh, you know fix as a not a not very good way to put it, but you know what I mean. That this this sometimes is the mindset the policymakers actually, and I don't think it's very helpful. You know, you fix this problem and then everything else will take care of itself. Um, and yes, hopefully that's that's sometimes true, but actually, you know, it 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 clearly is not always true. The best example of that is in postnatal depression, where we, there's been a lot of work done, where the focus is on treating the the parents' depression, and that's really important and necessary. And we know that that those sorts of psychological therapies can be really effective for the parents' mental health uh, difficulties. But getting that to kind of follow through to really improve the child's outcome seems to be much more difficult and doesn't seem to happen spontaneously after the, the parents have been supportive in relation to their mental health difficulties. So that those are the sorts of circumstances where you need to be alert to the possibility that there needs to be relational support related to the relationship between the, the parent and the child that won't necessarily just correct itself once the parent is feeling a bit better. And, and that's why as the Parent for Foundation, we're so passionate about advocating for that relationship support to be part of the system for families to make sure that we are, we have this kind of little equation that we have in a lot of our materials about reducing adversity and supporting relationships and those two things needing to sit together in policy. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Yeah. I think the other thing that, again, I think is a bit of an open door in terms of policy, um, so th that's really, really good. I think there's a lot of awareness of this, is this 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 point about integration. So I, I, it, it's, and so I think that the, the family hubs model is really exciting because um, for, for two different reasons. We, we, we talked about how um, families don't sort of have these separate kind of issues. It's all, you know, they're all intertwined, your health and your physical, your mental health and your relationships. And, you know, these are all linked. And so having services that reflect that and can can deal with it in a holistic way is really important but the other thing that i think is absolutely key is that families need trust in these sources of of 
professional support um, and they need continuity and again this is this is coming through now as as, as uh, you know I think policymakers are recognizing how important that is but it really matters that families can go back to people that they know you know the relationship with their GP can be so important or their health visitor and maintaining those relationships um, is is I think part of the key because so much of where we fall down even where there are services available is that people turn off them or lose trust or give up um, because they um, um, because they're, you know, being passed from pillar to post, uh, and they're having to form new relationships, and as you said, so tell their story over and over again. And, and actually, you want these kinds of sources of support to be just part of the community, in my view. A bit like, you know, you know how the school gates are actually a great place where families just congregate naturally, and there are sort of natural relationships that form there, including with teachers and things like that. You want your sort of community health and mental health and parenting and family support service to be like that where people can just feel totally comfortable to come in have a chat get some support if they need it um, and it's the kind of go-to place where families and professionals can you know congregate and there's no, and there's no stigma and you know support is is, is there um, and can be trusted and and, um, and we reduce as many of the barriers to accessing support as possible and maybe I'll put one more point in there on that, which is I think families actually really need to be in the driving seat in, in, in dictating how that actually, how those are created, because they know best about what they like and need and, um, and, and what they'd support and how they'd like to be treated. And that's so bringing them into the, the way that services arrive is really important. Yeah, that's so true. And I think reframing our question, we so often ask, you know, how can we get families into these services, not how do we get the services to families? You know, like you say, yeah. families are at the school gates or, you know, most people give birth in a hospital or, or, or with a midwife present. They are, there are these contact points happening. And, and they're, they're really precious, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. And we can easily just sort of let them go and then they dissipate and then you've lost it. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm sort of reflecting on how actually what families need is so much, so similar to what babies need. It's about relationships, responsive relationships. Totally, exactly. I know. I always sort of say, look, it's, you know, I spend some of my time trying to be sort of, you know, a professorial sort of, you know, trying to sound clever. But I often end up saying, look, it's not rocket science, a lot of this stuff. You know, we're all in relationships. We know what those are. We know what, what, what helps us to feel better. We know when we feel like we trust somebody. We know when we, you know, um, uh, uh, yeah, we know when we're struggling. And baby relationships with our babies or our children or our our parents or or our, you know, our therapists or doctors or nurses or whatever. That you know, actually, a lot of that um, is not rocket science. It's just about being kind, compassionate, responsive, trustworthy, genuine. Um, Pasco, I could keep going all day on this, but I'm conscious that we do need to draw it to close. I'm going to ask you our final question, um, which is the question we're asking every guest on the series. Um, so what is one lesson about early trauma that you think people need to hear? I, I suppose I would say that, that um, the one thing we have learned is that even in the face of adversity, things can definitely be turned around. So consistent, kind, compassionate, Helping relationships are the key for babies, for their parents, for carers, um, and this is and this includes professionals, friends, informal networks, and so on. That ultimately, yes, kind, compassionate, responsive relationships are probably the key to turning around 
adverse early starts in life so that children can flourish. So it's a message of hope. We could, There's loads we can do. We just have yeah. to get them and do it. And it's that um, to, to, to change a well-known phrase, it's, it's all about relationships, stupid. That's the message for policy makers. Um, Pasco, thank you. Um, it was a fantastic discussion and I really look forward to seeing more of that evidence emerging from the Children's 2020 study when it comes um, and what else we can keep learning in this space. But thank you very, very much for your time today. Emma. Thanks, Neil. And, and, and thank you for all of the, the tireless work you do to promote infant mental health and uh, early relationships. It's, it's brilliant. So, yeah, thanks so much. Thank you. Um, so I'm Sally Hogg, Deputy Chief Executive at the Parent Infant Foundation, and I've been joined by Professor Pasco Fearon. I hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast and look out for other episodes in our mini series on understanding early trauma. Thank you for listening to the Parent Infant Podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. This episode is part of a mini series looking at the theme of understanding early trauma and the importance of early relationships. You can find our other episodes wherever you get your podcasts.